from KQED. Joining me now is poet, playwright, MacArthur Fellow, and Yale professor Claudia Rankin. Using poetry, documents, and essays, Rankin's new book, Just Us, shares her exploration into the power and the limits of conversation as a tool for interracial understanding. Claudia Rankin, thanks so much for joining us. Good morning, or good afternoon. It's great to be here. Yes, good afternoon for you. Uh, morning for us here on the, the West Coast. One of the things that I was really struck by was how you had pointed out that while you have a white husband, that you had not engaged in a lot of conversation with white men, even though you found engaging in conversations with strangers fairly easily, and that you wanted to try. <laughs> and I guess one of the things that I wondered about was at this time, right, when we're when we're seeing this racial reckoning across the country, we're seeing uprisings, we're seeing calling out of systems. I mean, what role do you think sort of the humble conversation plays in all of that? Well, I think conversations um, are an attempt to build something, um, a kind of bridge or a kind of understanding or just to communicate a thing. And, um, and I think, you know, when you hear statistics like 62% of white men voted for Donald Trump and, and we are where we are today, it becomes curious to me, what are they thinking? <laughs> um, so that was sort of behind the impetus to try. And what was really remarkable was that, you know, you were trying in places like airports <laughs> with complete strangers on planes, in lobbies, um, as well as other spaces. You've ha had basically two conversations that really kind of jumped out in terms of one where you were talking with a man who you managed to engage in a conversation with about his son's rejection from Yale, which is, of course, where you teach. Can you describe a little bit of what played out in that conversation, just to give our listeners a sense? That conversation happened um, when a flight was delayed, so I happened to just be sitting there. And you make those, you know, small talk, who are you? How long is the, did you hear what they said? And, and finally, when I, he said, you know, what do you do? And I said, I teach at Yale. And he said that his son had applied early decision and not gotten in. He might have ultimately gotten in, but he didn't get in for um, early decision. And, um, and then he said the odd thing to me um, that it was, he couldn't, the son couldn't play to the diversity card. <laughs> And, and I, I thought, ah, do you know who you're talking to? Uh, <laughs> and I, I mean that in the most general sense, you know, a black person and you're pulling, you're saying that. And, and, and so the conversation actually continued from there because I thought this is his way of introducing racial politics into the conversation. So why don't I ask him about his white privilege and assumptions around that white privilege? And what happened? Um, um, you know, in, in a sense, nothing. In a sense, he, he started to say that he, um, he didn't have privilege. His understanding of privilege had to do with economic privilege. And, and for me, it was a learning experience because I began to understand that the minute you use privilege with white people, they think you're talking about economic privilege. 
Mm. And for that reason, I began to say white living rather than white privilege, because for me, the privilege is to be able to be alive, to be able to enter my home and not have somebody call the police and say, I'm breaking and entering, you know, to be able to be in a store and buy something without having somebody from the store follow me down every aisle around every corner. And so when I'm talking about white privilege, I'm talking about the ability to just live your life, to move around without being under surveillance and and possibly racially profiled to the point of your death. Yes, I, I thought that was so illuminating when you talked about how white privilege is viewed among a lot of white people as economic privilege. It really helped, I think, unmask for me what what felt like when people were talking on different planes around this question of privilege or why people would feel somewhat offended or defensive around around the word privilege because it was so much tied up with class exactly in their minds and and in some ways it should be you know the kinds of um um preoccupations ac- African-Americans and other people of color have with just being able to stay alive shouldn't actually be a preoccupation. And, and white people don't understand the privilege they have that, that they're not thinking about those things. And so when I come to you and I say, oh, you have white privilege, I'm assuming you understand that for me, at any moment, I could be pulled over by the police and killed. Or at any moment, a Karen could come up to me and say, you don't actually live in this house. I'm calling the police, you know, but instead, um, white people think, oh, I'm not part of the 1%. What are you talking about? I don't have, you know, five houses. We're talking with Claudia Rankin, poet, playwright, and author about her new book, Just Us, An American Conversation. She's also a professor of English and African-American studies at Yale University and a recipient of the MacArthur Genius Grant. And we'd like to invite you, our listeners, to join the conversation, 866-733-6786. Again, 866-733-6786. You can also email us at forum at kqed.org or reach us on Twitter or Facebook at KQED Forum. More about conversations about race after the break. I'm Mina Kim. This is Forum. I'm Mina Kim. We're talking with Claudia Rankin, poet, playwright, Yale professor, and author. Her new book, Just Us, An American Conversation. Claudia Rankin, one of the reasons that I wanted to ask you about that engagement that you had um, in the airport with the person who said that his son wasn't able to play the diversity card and therefore didn't get into Yale was because in some ways in that conversation, you also held back a lot to be able to have the conversation. And I was also really struck by a description you had about a friend who didn't get a job that he applied for, and that he basically said, well, I'm, I'm absorbing sort of the problems of the world, the sins of, of my forefathers, and he understood why maybe he would not be somebody who would get a job. And the thing that I find so interesting is that you know, we're often told that we need to engage uh, in able to make in order to make change, right? To enable change. But oftentimes, when we're having conversations about race, about whiteness, you know, the dynamics sort of replicate the dynamics of this system that we're in. And I, I was wondering how you 
how you dealt with that, if you found ways to subvert that? Well, you know, that's a great question because I, I do think that in the case of um, the friend who said, well, you know, I, I get it. I'm, I'm absorbing the, you know, the ramifications of a culture that has been white centered. He still had the assumption that he should get the job. <laughs> and um, rather than the fact that a, a, a place might have many people like him means that it's closed down in what it's allowed to represent, you know, and that to open out to a more diverse population, be it a person of color or women or whoever, is to bringing other perspectives. And, and so it's, it's in these conversations, I think it's hard to separate um, individuals from systems, you know? And so, that's what I try to do, to, to remember that there's a person in front of me, a person who didn't get a job and, and, and would like to be employed, and a person who I care about, versus what are the dynamics of the system, and can we, can we talk about one thing and then the other thing, uh, and not necessarily um, categorically slash and burn, you know? <laughs> Well, you've also wrestled with, you know, this, what you say you hear a lot from your students, which is, it's not my job to educate white people. And how do you address that while recognizing that, that yes, you know, it's a lot of labor. I mean, very clearly in the conversations that you have, you are going through so much um, intellectually, emotionally, it's very exhausting, and it requires a real commitment. <laughs> um, but at the same time, you, you do want to question this, it's not my job to educate white people. Yes, but, you know, I think that a choice is always there which is what I say to my students. It's not, there, it's not one situation with one answer. There are kinds of questions that you can refer people back to um, their computers, to dictionaries, to whatever. You know, somebody asked me the other day, what's redlining? I said, do you have a computer? Look it up. Um, and he said, okay. <laughs> and that was that. But if he then came back to me and said, you know, what's your thoughts on how housing has worked in New Haven where I live, I would be really interested in that conversation. So, you know, there are times when if I'm being used as a dictionary, no. But if I'm being engaged in terms of ideas, I'm really interested in that because I always can learn something as well. You know, I'm not walking around with all the answers. Yes, that was the interesting part of this was it sounds like it sounds like so much of this process was also just a journey for you about what you could learn about yourself in this process. And others. Yeah. Yeah. Why was why was that an important piece of this? Well, because, you know, I think, and I'll speak for myself as a Black person, I, I work in spaces that are populated by everyone, um, across gender lines, across race lines. 
and across religious lines. And so I think it's important for me to be able to communicate with the people I work with, the people I am in communion with, the people who live next door. Um, we have become a culture where the segregationist um, policies of a white supremacist oriented, oriented um, society has influenced our own ability to live in the world. So, you know, you, you live next to your neighbor, you don't even know who they are. You have no sense of commitment. There's no collective we. There's not, and, and, and I think we had a president, have a president, hopefully had is the right thing come November. Um, we have a president who has um, divided the American public even further than it was. Um, because it's, he's been able to play on racial and racialized divide in this country. So, you know, his, that tweet he sent out to suburban moms um, claiming that uh, uh, um, urban housing is coming into their, to their neighborhood and, um, and Cory Booker, a black man, will be in charge of HUD. What he's doing is saying, I'm gonna create for you um, fear around black people. And if you vote for me, I'll make sure they don't come near you. And if we're not careful, we reinstate these ideas in her own heads. And that then determines how we live. So mm -hmm. I, I'm really interested in, in, in beginning to talk to other people, not that I take on their beliefs or ideas or they take on my beliefs or my ideas, but to be in a place where we can actually um, see ourselves as Americans who are in conversation. Yeah. And also, I mean, even looking at ourselves in terms of how we're socialized as part of a system uh, that's shaped by white supremacy as well and how we act in it, um, which I thought was was really brave. Uh, we've got some comments and calls coming in. And I will go to Alex, who writes, she writes in the introduction to Adrian Rich's collected poems about the importance of Rich's conversations with Audre Lorde. Can she speak about how these two poets' frequent conversations influenced her own thinking about interracial conversation? Well, what, I um, thank you for that question. Um, I, I, I really found the interactions between Lord and Rich interesting because Lloyd, Lord at no time um, allowed Rich to co-opt her into her belief systems. And, you know, Adrian Rich is somebody who has worked hard on behalf of people of color, um, the queer community, but came out of a white orientation. So she made mistakes and, and Orgy Lord never stopped saying to her, um, your particular concerns might not be my particular concerns. And they built a friendship around that dialogue and performed it in public for the rest of us. And, and so Rich is somebody who, um, whose work I've been 
interested in. And Audre Lorde is in Just Us, um, quoted extensively, mm -hmm. in fact. She is. We're talking with Claudia Rankin, poet, playwright, and author about her new book, Just Us, an American Conversation. And you, our listeners, have you been engaging in conversations about race or, or whiteness? How have you approached them, experienced them? Were they messy, uncomfortable? Did you try to avoid the discomfort? Tell us about them at 866-733-6786. Again, 866-733-6786. You can also get in touch on Twitter and Facebook at KQED Forum or email your questions to forum at kqed.org. Let me go to Eric in Palo Alto. Hi, Eric. Join us. Hi. Yeah, um, I'm, you know, I'm very confused by the whole um, you know, sort of binary relationship of, you know, white supremacy versus everything else or white versus everything else. I mean, like, for instance, uh, we have a very large Asian population in California. You know, they don't face any of the problems that, you know, she mentioned, your guest mentioned that, you know, a person of color would face in terms of being stalked by police or anything else. In fact, they have a you know lower rate of being shot by police than than Caucasians. Right. So, uh, you know, like, how do they play into this? And, you know, isn't there sort of just a panoply of race? And, and are, what we're really talking about is problems specific to the, in particular to the African-American community. But it's not, it's not particularly about white versus everything else. It's about, you know, what we need to do to help this one particular community, the African-American community. So I guess I've, I've sort of thrown a lot in there, but uh, could you sort of maybe start with explaining, like, how do, how do Asians fit into this whole equation? Are they people of color or are they part of the white supremacy, uh, you know, uh, overstructure if, uh, in your way of thinking? Um, well, I can say that Asian Americans are definitely affected by systemic racism. And also, though they may not experience it in exactly the same ways, uh, it's definitely not a situation where... Um, <laughs> where it's it's that they're not people of color. I mean, Adrian Rich, you did some very interesting examination, not just of of Asian Americans, you know, the Latinx community, you've also really looked at both the power and the limitations of the black white binary. I don't know if you have a reaction to Eric. Hi, Eric. Um, good question. I, I hope the fires are not um, um, too much where you are. It's really devastating what's going on. Um, I, first of all, I would love to recommend the work of Kathy Park Hong. She has a book called Minor Feelings, an Asian American Reckoning. One of the things, my last book, Citizen, one of the things that happened when I wrote Citizen, which is about you know microaggressions against white people in the United States, that, that was interesting to me, uh, many, Asian women came to me and said, um, I know this book was written within the black white binary, but I cannot tell you how many of these experiences I have experienced as an Asian woman from white people. So I'm not sure which um, or what population of Asian Americans you're in conversation with, but I have always heard that many of the same kinds of um, of, of dismissals are are being um, implemented in terms of Asian Americans. It's true that the dynamic with the police is different, and that's because um, slavery in this country 
morphed itself into um, the Jim Crow era, which marked itself into mass incarceration. And, and that kind of policing of Black people as criminals is something that has been um, nurtured in this society over centuries. And so I think you're right that in that area, the treatment might be somewhat different. I think um, the treatment of Blacks and Latinx people are probably closer when it comes to treatment by the police. But in terms of microaggressions around the Asian community, I think if you were to sit down with members of the Asian community and ask them how they're treated by white people, how welcome they feel at certain moments, you might have a, um, a different understanding of how that plays itself out. We're also living in a very volatile and fraught time with the pandemic and our federal government's attempts to try to pin the blame and to racialize the virus. Exactly, uh, the China so, virus. Yeah. yeah, I mean, it's it's definitely, you know, exploded beyond micro as well. Exactly, so, exactly. Gina writes, asking as a white ally who's admittedly privileged, when you and your family or peers see white people with Black Lives Matter signs and support, is that helpful or do you feel like they can't relate and should stay out of it? Two, I find white people struggle to define people who aren't white. In describing an actor, for example, I asked a friend, is he black? And the room grew tense. Was I wrong? Well, I guess the first question in terms of the Black Lives Matter movement, when you see family or peers, when, when you or your family or peers see white people, is that helpful or do you feel that they can't relate and should stay out of it? Uh, first, your reaction to that. Well, I don't think staying out of it is even an action. You know, I mean, you know, the, a lot of placards say white silence equals violence. And I, I see the Black Lives Matter um, signs as a way of saying we are involved. We understand how there is no being outside of this, that this kind of violence, this kind of systemic racism is something not only that we see and recognize, we also understand how it informs our own lives. And so I think this notion that you can stay out of it is erroneous and, you know, from the get-go. And so I, I'm happy to see those signs. Um, the signs don't say I am black. It says I support Black Lives Matter and and I too support Black Lives Matter. Do you see evidence that, that black and white people are starting to share the same reality? Especially since this book in many ways is is basically the end of a trilogy, right? I mean, you wrote Don't Let Me Be Lonely and then Citizen. And now this book is coming out at a time when I'm sure the nation is at a place where maybe it was hard to even imagine when you began writing just us. So do you feel like for the first time, things are really starting to be shared in terms of an understanding about how the country works? I do think so. I think, you know, I think what's been going on with the suburban moms in Portland and in other states is astounding. It's something I've never seen in my lifetime. Um, the diversity of the um, protest movement in terms of not just race, but age, um, everything. You know, people were out there. I think finally we are in a moment where there is beginning to be an understanding that these levels of inequity and, and um, 
modes of social injustice affect all of us, are producing a world that our children should not have to fix. It's on us to fix it. We should all fix it. We should all um, understand that we are all American citizens. And as much as we can create um, equity in this, in this land of ours, the better off we all are. And then the second part of Gina's question, when she asked if an actor was black and the room grew tense, I mean, that does sound very much like also what you experienced in different ways when you were trying to engage in conversation, right? This sort of uh, the etiquette that's expected around these kinds of conversations or fear of, of engaging in ways that might not be, quote, right. Well, we have social contracts that say you shouldn't ask about certain things. You know, people don't come up to you and ask you how much money you make or they don't ask women their ages and things like that. And one of those things is that you don't ask about people's race. And and I think this is a problem. I think we should be, be able to say, you know, is the person black? Is the person Asian? Because these things actually play out in, in terms of some consideration. And... The fact that the room got tense shouldn't be a problem. If we're gonna try and shift things, discomfort will happen. We will begin to start um, feeling a little bit uncomfortable until it becomes okay to have these conversations. More with Claudia Rankin after the break. I'm Mina Kim. This is Forum. I'm Mina Kim. We're talking with Claudia Rankin. Her new book is Just Us, an American Conversation, and it completes a trilogy following books Don't Let Me Be Lonely and Citizen. Her books of poetry include Nothing in Nature is Private, The End of the Alphabet, and Plot. She's also a professor of English and African American Studies at Yale University and a recipient of the MacArthur Genius Grant. And she's with us today and with you, our listeners. What are your questions, comments for Claudia Rankin? Call us at 866-733-6786. Again, 866-733-6786. You can also reach us on Twitter and Facebook at KQED Forum or email your questions to forum at kqed.org. Sue writes, loving this convo, my 25-year-old daughter is teaching me about necessary changes to the golden rule. For example, treating those the way we want to be treated isn't considering the other person's experiences and needs. One of the conversations that I'd love to talk with you about, Claudia Rankin, is the one that you were having around the way that your husband would respond to you when you were bringing up things that happened. Um, you know, he would say things like, oh, white fragility is an explanation of some kind of uh, engagement that you might have had. And you were talking about how sometimes even people who are aware and understand their privilege or whiteness, that even those kinds of comments can be barriers to deeper conversation. Can you explain what you meant? Well, I think certain um, terminology um, empties out when it gets when they get overused, and so they're useful because they point to certain dynamics. But I think sometimes it's interesting to be able to kind of delve in and and think about the ways in which we ourselves might perform the same thing and how it differs, how it's the same, what makes us uncomfortable, why perhaps um, we might have 
felt like we wanted to shut down the conversation even if we didn't. And, and so I think especially in our more intimate relationships, you, you, we need to sort of begin to practice to sustain conversations around race. And, mm-hmm. um, and so to, to just drop in, oh, um, well, it's just white fragility, it's white defensiveness begins to perform a kind of shutting down the conversation. And so I've tried to train myself to ask questions. You know, like I could say it's white defensiveness or I could say, do you think it's white defensiveness? (laughs) Do you think um, that person was feeling attacked in some way? how would you have felt in that situation? Only because I, those kinds of explorations for me often yields uh, a different orientation towards the subject, which I'm interested in. And I, and I think in our intimate relationships, that's how you get to know people. Yeah. Conversations build knowledge. I know you and your husband live a a very public private life to some extent but how hard was it to include that dynamic um, talking about counseling in your book well you know i was thinking uh, (laughs) a lot of people said oh that's so personal but i don't think i have a friend who hasn't had a little counseling during a 30-year marriage (laughs) you know and if you haven't you know good on you but <laughs> so in, in, in my life, it felt very ordinary in a way. I mean, um, so many of us are asked in our marriages to be the same person for 30 years. But things change, people change, different factors come in. Certainly in my case, having breast cancer um, reoriented me in terms of the kinds of things that I was thinking about and um, wanting in my relationships, not just with my husband, with my friends, with the world, in fact. Yeah. Well, let me go to caller Chris in Oakland. Hi, Chris. Hey, thanks for taking my call. I uh, really appreciate everything your guest is saying. I'm sorry to say I haven't read any of your books, but I'm about to. but yeah, I would, you, you asked the question, uh, have I been trying to have those conversations? And it, interestingly enough, you know, I'm sort of stuck with our families mostly. And my wife is a uh, good, she, she does a good job calling me out and in a proper way, you know, she's a smart girl. And uh, we debate, you know, and try and follow it to its conclusion. Why do I think this? What do I think? And having those conversations... <laughs> routinely helps me know what I think. So I have been trying to hold people that I know, not so much hold them to account, but try to have the conversations that are not easy to have. And, and, and when someone does say something that perhaps begs a response, make the response. Why, why do you think that, you know, and those are not, especially online, it's hard to have them in a structured mm-hmm. way that, that is correct. And in terms of debate, I try and, you know, actually, I'm, I'm not a debate kid, but, you know, have evidence, make your argument, say, no, that's a logical fallacy, you know, and try and actually have it all the way. A lot of people just want to argue, so it's well, hard, but you still got to do it, and that's your job as a citizen. You know, we're supposed to, that's a robust democracy. You're supposed to debate ideas, and it's not a skill that 
I try and do it as much as I can because we don't do it as a culture very much. Well, Chris, thanks for sharing that. Uh, let me go next to Barry Lee in Larkspur. Hi, Barry Lee. Oh, hi. Can you hear me? I can. Okay, thank you. Um, it's such a pleasure to hear um, you speak, Ms. Rankin, and I was just wondering uh, your thoughts on um, the groundswell, the recent groundswell. Um, to look back a few years ago when Howard Schultz was trying to begin conversations, it fell flat in Starbucks. Um, I'm just wondering if we could ever put together a timeline uh, for white people so that they could comprehend, and not we as in you and me, I'm, I'm thinking myself, that would show just like the history of suffrage and how it comes to pass over time. For those people who don't understand um, the idea behind privilege, for those people who don't understand like what Victor Lee Lewis talks about in The Color of Fear, um, I, I would love to see a way to educate people to help them understand. It's not George Floyd just. Just is not, it's more than that. It's, it's just, um, it's a matter of trying to explain to white people um, without getting them to be defensive and fragile. And I don't mean you explain, I mean other white people like myself. Mm -hmm. Fairly, thank you. I don't know if you wanted to respond, uh, Claudia Rankin. Well, I think um, there have been a few things that have come out recently that have pushed the conversation, like the New York Times P6019, I thought did a really great job of presenting different perspectives on, on how we got to be here. There are also people like Robin DiAngelo, Tim Wise, who have been writing and speaking to these issues along with Ibram Kendi um, and, and many others. So I, I think we're in a really golden era of engagement around the issues from all kinds of people, um, um, whites, blacks, Asians, the, the book I mentioned earlier, Minor Feelings by Kathy Park Hong. Um, and then in, in film, Ava DuVernay's work has been, you know, she, she did um, uh, a, a film on the Central Park jogger case that we gave us the actual history rather than the mythology around what happened with those youths in the, in, who were imprisoned. Mm -hmm. So I think there are so many different ways in which people are coming in and, and bringing back the real history and the, and the real facts rather than the facts that support a white supremacist orientation. One of the things that I'm struck by is, even though I think this conversation is sort of starting from the, the premise that conversation is useful, productive, change will happen and worth it. Um, in some ways, your book leaves that as an open question. Um, and I'm wondering, you know, yeah, sorry, you're about to say something. Well, I agree with you. <laughs> I agree with you. I mean, there is a line, what if nothing happens after everything? You know, and that's always the fear. I mean, we've had the protests this summer. What if um, nothing happens come 
a vaccination and we were all back at our jobs and suddenly this was just that time. Uh, so that's, that's all because we've been dealing with the same thing um, for centuries. And, and the steps seem like baby steps relative to the amount of progress we've made. We're still in a position where people can, you know, where a man, one man can put his knee on another man's neck and watch him die. And people stand around and watch him watch the dying man die. And that's okay, you know? So <laughs> I, it's, it's, and we, can, we have a president who knew about the virus and said nothing. We have a reporter who knew that he said nothing and had tapes and didn't release the tapes despite um, having, holding on to them since February while people were dying all around us. So, you know, what if nothing happens? That is always a possibility. Yes. And so anyone looking to read this book is almost like a primer for how to have these difficult conversations. It really isn't it. What it is, is just an exploration of how these different conversations have played out. And it sounds like that was really deliberate for you. Yes, because I, you know, um, I think these are choices we have to make every day for ourselves. Are we okay with the world we live in? Is this the world we want to pass on to our children? Are we willing to take actions beyond the conversations that allow for new conversations? Those are all things that I think um, justice tries to push towards, even if it itself doesn't go there. Well, Jess writes, when I was 12, my family doubled in size and became mixed race. We're three races and six faiths. As a child, I was very curious and fearless and asked my new family about how they experienced life. Those conversations became harder as we all grew up, even though we became closer as a family. In the last few years now that we're all adults in our late 30s, we've been able to open up and have these conversations again. Brian writes, a lot of people are now reading and learning about racial inequity, but don't have the potential stamina to have the long and uncomfortable conversations with others. What advice do you have to help people build stamina to have these difficult conversations? Well, I think it's kind of like running. You do a little bit more each time. And, and that's how the stamina builds. There's more information available. There's, it also, I mean, to have the conversation means that you're also doing your own work. You're also reading, you're also listening. You, you know, the, the, the film I referred to is When They See Us by Ava DuVernay. And as a family, watch that film. Think about what it meant for those kids to be, to a justice system, to fail them at every level. Um, you know, these are five kids who were accused of raping and beating up a woman, even though they were in a different part of Central Park when the rape happened. The district attorney, Linda Fairstein, knew they were in a different place and yet convinced police, jury, judge that they were guilty. So how does that happen, you know? So the, I think share these kinds of discussions. So it's not a full, talk about the film. What is the film doing for you? What is the book doing? Um, what is um, Beyonce's Lemonade saying? <laughs> you know, there, there are other ways into the conversation than a direct conversation. Um, movie night, those kinds of things. Let me go next to Jeffrey in San Francisco. Hi, Jeffrey. 
Uh, yes, hi. Um, I would just like to uh, comment. I I was um, listening to the program about the uh, binary construct and the uh, police. Uh, when it comes to Asian population, we don't feel there's not much of anything. It's wrong. It's, uh, when police uh, is... I have personal experience being stopped by police. The, the fear is that I know for sure I'll get a ticket. You know, I might not be getting shot or anything like that, but you know, the, the fear is real. And the construct binary does not work. It's not binary for sure, but the resonance is strong in that it was that common that the, there is structural uh, involved, structural differential involved here that needs to be looked at. Jeffrey, thanks. Uh, let me go next to Vivian in Riverside. Hi, Vivian. Hi, Vivian. Uh, while we try to establish that connection with Vivian, uh, I will go next to Bridget in Mountain House. Hi, Bridget. Hi, good morning. Thank you for taking my call. I just wanted to um, make a comment around um, Asians and how they feel or if they, if they participate in protests and things like that. I, it just reminded me about... Uh, a conversation I had with a dear Asian friend of mine on the day that the protest started in the Bay Area when George, after George Floyd was killed. And when my friend said to me that her friend, her husband just called her to come back home because he was concerned that, quote-unquote, these people are rioting all over the place. And um, I listened to her, I empathized with her, and I reassured her that, you know, it would be safer for her to go home if that's how she felt. But then I reminded her that, um, you know, I said, you know, I do have a black husband. I have a black son. I have a black son-in-law and a black um, grandchild. Mm -hmm. And it was like, she just, she sounded as if I just catapulted her to another world. Like she didn't have the, the, the awareness of mind to remember that she was talking to her black friend. So, you know, I think sometimes as black people, as hard as it is for us to, it might be for us to have these conversations with people who are not black, um, it takes a toll, but we do have to do the work to sometimes listen to them, empathize with them, and sort of gradually navigate them to where we are so they see and hopefully understand how we feel. Then we'll hopefully begin to move forward from there. Bridget, thanks. Thanks so much for sharing that. We just have a minute or so left, Claudia Rankin, and I'll try to get one last comment in. Douglas writes, I've been keen to engage and have been engaging my black friends on this national conversation. One bit of hesitance that I have, though, is that I don't want my black friends to think I'm seeing them as my black friends when there's so much more to me. Any thoughts on that challenge? Well, I, you know, I, I, in, in just us, I talk a little bit about what happens when I have a conversation with a white man and he says, I don't see color. Mm -hmm. And I say to him, ain't I a black woman? I, I don't, you know, I think we need not worry about distinctions that are real distinctions. You wouldn't say, I didn't want the woman to think I thought she was a woman. I am a black woman. That's okay. I own that. And, and if you're taking that into account, I appreciate that. 
in the same way that I, I, I think, oh, you are a white man, so maybe that will open up certain different kinds of questions, or you're an Asian woman and that might open up. I'm not really interested in stopping the conversation. Yeah. Well, it's, I'm so glad to have you on to talk about this because I think with conversation, um, in a different way than protest, there's so much to lose often in the relationship when you're engaging with it that there's a lot at stake. And so appreciate hearing about all your experiences navigating that. Thanks so much for coming on Forum today. Thank you so much for having me. Bye-bye. Claudia Rankin, her new book is Just Us, an American Conversation. Ariana Prail produced today's segment. Thanks to our listeners for their questions and comments. I'm Mina Kim. Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio, the Germanicos Foundation, and the Generosity Foundation, and the Bernard Osher Foundation, supporting higher education and the arts.